Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, January the 17th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Um, As we observe the prolonged but apparently not quite imminent demise of the Conservative government at Westminster after almost 14 years in power, and as the UK uh, continues to grapple with the economic and political difficulties that that government is going to leave in its wake, uh, the question of what the hell happened over there has been asked by more than one observer, including a few on this side of the water in various books and documents and TV programmes. One of the most excoriating answers to that question comes in the shape of the recently published book How They Broke Britain by the author and broadcaster James O'Brien, who's been a guest on this podcast before and who I'm very pleased to welcome back. Hiya, James. Thank you for having me again, Hugh. Great to see you. James, you have a list of people who broke Britain. Most of those names will be familiar to most of our listeners. They range from Nigel Farage to Rupert Murdoch to, of course, Boris Johnson. Uh, Was it tough to put the list together? No, I, I mean, they, they, they kind of presented themselves, to be honest with you. Once I'd come up with the central thesis for the book, which was more about working out how the ecosystem in which the really appalling stuff could happen had been created, rather than how the appalling stuff could happen. It was about the backdrop, the, 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 the environment, the ecosystem in which it could happen. And then identifying three essential sort of engines of change or, or engines of influence that had created that ecosystem, namely the media, um, the, the, the more, this weird post-Brexit iteration of the Conservative Party, or pre-Brexit, but, but this very strange iteration of the Conservative Party, and then these secretly funded lobby groups that, that call themselves think tanks that have infested British political discourse and, and, and the media now for, for the best part of 30 or 40 years. Once I'd identified those three engines then then the names the names came pretty easily actually and i what i wasn't left with to my surprise was a sort of um a wrestle over who should get in and who should get out the, 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 it was it was pretty crystal clear who deserved inclusion and and albeit that her chapter is considerably shorter than the other nine for obvious reasons liz trust then popped up after the book had been commissioned i think as as a, as a pretty neat conclusion and a kind of everything seemed to lead towards the absolute disaster of her administration. So as you depicted pretty convincingly, I should say, the, uh, there's these sort of three intersecting carousels, as you described them, of the, of, the, of the United Kingdom, the right-wing media, the think tanks, and the Conservative Party itself. And there's people hopping off one merry-go-round and hopping onto another all the time. And the, the level of in, the intersection between those worlds is one of the things that really struck me. I mean, we're not unfamiliar here with the idea that, you know, journalists sometimes end up working for ministers and vice versa, and they bounce from one thing to another. But it's far more extreme over there. I don't think our listeners realise it, that they're really jumping around very quickly from one into the other and back into the oh, other. I don't think my listeners on, on, on LBC realised it either, and you're certainly not going to read about it in any of the newspapers that are up to their neck in it, or hear about it on the broadcasters that, of course, are using these people to contribute to their programmes, um, even as, as they 
access the revolving door between Fleet Street, Downing Street, and Tufton Street, which is a sort of collective noun for all of these for all of these think tanks. When when trust came into Downing Street, I couldn't believe the number of people from uh, organisations with, with with fancy names but no transparent funding, like the Adam Smith Institute or the Institute of Economic Affairs, and, and a bunch of others that moved immediately into jobs. Some of them had never worked except for these lobby groups that call themselves think tanks, and yet they were taking up positions as senior advisors to, to cabinet ministers and, and even prime ministers. And then if, if you go back, I, I begin that bit of the, the crossover with Andy Coulson going into Downing Street as David Cameron's director of communications. But by the time Boris Johnson was in Downing Street, it, it, you had people coming from the Daily Mail and to a lesser extent... Theresa May coming from the Daily Mail or the Sun, doing a, a you know a few laps around Downing Street, and then going back to the Daily Mail or the Sun, as if the the pretense that newspaper journalists in particular existed to hold power to account had been completely abandoned, without any of us really noticing, you know, because for people in in, in my line of work, that they're, they're often these are their mates, they're not my mates, but these are the mates of people that are my mates, if you see what I mean. And so you're not you're not going to start blowing the whistle on your your opposite number at the at the mail or the sun after they've gone into Downing Street and gone back to a newspaper, despite the fact that it makes a complete mockery of the idea that these are the people that can be relied upon to tell truth to power or to hold power to account. Now, I mean, as you and I both know well, uh, the media is an imperfect business, to put it to put it mildly. But th- there are some particular things about the United Kingdom's media, and I have mixed feelings about it. And I think you do as well. I, I take this from the book, which is on the one hand, it's extremely lively. Uh, it's much less stick in the mud than, say, its American equivalent. Uh, you know, newspapers like the New York Times are. It's kind of it's irreverent. I sort of admire some of that kind of tabloid edge that you get to things sometimes. But on the other hand, it's also I think it's fair to say much more right wing and plays a bit faster and looser with the truth than media does in other countries as well. Well, there's been a corruption, uh, which I, I trace back to when Rupert Murdoch bought the Sun, and perhaps even more pertinently to when he got his hands on the Times in in slightly murky circumstances, which again I, I describe in in detail that you're you're not going to find in many other places because um, the Murdoch family remains so powerful in, in 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 so many ways, and 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 part of the corruption is a conflation of news and opinion. So there used to be a fairly clear distinction between the op-ed pages or the columnists, the big shot, you know, above the above the title columnists and the news pages. But you've seen increasingly, most notably probably at the Mail, but more recently at the Telegraph as well, which is a great personal tragedy to me because that was my late father's newspaper when it really was the paper of record. And latterly at the Times as well, the, the, the conflation of news with opinion has become pretty much endemic and that that means that the public is being served incredibly poorly so however much we enjoy the knockabout nature of a, of a well-written column or a, or a pungent opinion piece they should not be infecting the news coverage and and when you throw into the mix the the quotes research end quotes that's commissioned by these think tanks that now ends up not on the comment pages as a piece by the head of you know uh, paper clips or, or the lord high panjandrum at one of these outfits they used to write for the comment pages which was bad enough but now they commission research opaquely which miraculously ends up arriving at conclusions that suit their their ideology to to a t and then they now end up on on the news pages on the front pages and and they're reported as news so a mysteriously funded 
piece of research which miraculously concludes that the editorial line of the newspaper or the ideological bent of the think tank is 100% correct is now reported as news when it is, of course, an opinion and and often an ill-founded one at that. How much of this is driven by a kind of a, a massive conspiracy and how much of it is driven by commercial imperatives? I think you refer at some point when you look at the kind of changes in the Murdoch empire over over the years about how it how it reacted to to the digital world as it started emerging in the in the 90s and the noughties. And there's that famous quote of course about when Fox News got sued for a massive amount of money over its libeling of Dominion voting systems where the word from Murdoch was that the reason why that sort of twisting of the facts took place was not for uh, the red or the blue in American political terms. It was for the green. It was all about the money. It was all about the Benjamins. Um, I, I, I wanted to speak to other people about this because otherwise you do run the risk of sounding a bit conspiratorial. And, and David Yelland, uh, a former editor of The Sun who'd also worked for Murdoch in America and, in fact, I think was in the building in New York when they were launching Fox News. He, he gave me a very lengthy... Um, he made a very lengthy contribution to the book and, and he, I think, very compellingly describes Roger Ailes, who was the godfather of Fox News, and Murdoch realising that the threat the internet posed was acute because it would be like the Wild West. It would be completely unregulated. And if you had already made a fortune commoditizing. Uh, let's just call it othering uh, or, or, or commoditizing division in the way that the Murdoch media had done, then the internet would pose an enormous threat to you unless you could get in front of it. And so Fox News was conceived, according to David's analysis, very much as going as dark and as deep as the internet would before the internet was up and running. And, and I think that that complete disregard, even contempt for observable reality, for the truth, um, was in place long before Donald Trump came along. But of course, when Donald Trump came along, it was like a, it was like a marriage made in hell, culminating in the depositions you described from the Dominion case, when the company that created the voting uh, machines, the counting machines that Donald Trump denigrated, um, uh, and and some of his denigrations were supported on on Fox News. They, they knew off air. You can see in the depositions they they knew off air that there was nothing in the story, but they also knew that it was bringing in viewers and it was delighting the audience and and that becomes a sort of an object lesson really in in how financial interests and influence interests have come to completely trump any any semblance of what what you and me and many others would describe as journalism so how much of the phenomenon which you're describing, not just in media, but, you know, among politicians, particularly, you know, people like Nigel Farage, who sort of sprung onto the system rather than going through the classic, you know, the, the, the two-party system in the UK, took a took a different kind of a route. It's a sort of a new form of political entrepreneurialism that we see in, maybe in lots of walks of life, you see it, you see it in media, you might see it in, you know, podcasts, you know, and you see it, you see it in politics as well, is that the old systems perhaps were pretty shaky and people started shaking them and they started falling apart and a, a new generation of people started coming through. Yeah, I, I like that description, entrepreneurialism. I suppose, depending on your perspectives, it would be opportunism as well or, or, or a combination of both. Mm. And, you know, I, Farage is nothing new in the, in the sense of selling snake oil or trying to persuade people that their misfortunes are the fault of foreigners. That, that, that as rhetoric, is as old as... probably as old as humanity itself. But the... But the combination of a media that was increasingly less concerned with the truth and more concerned with clicks and impact and a character who was very good at delivering clicks and impact, controversial, even in the early days when uh, editors would be holding their nose while booking him to appear on programmes, um, I don't think that happens anymore. 
I, I think now the the the, the sort of commercialization of opinion has become so so commonplace that the the question of whether or not the opinion is rooted in fact has has disappeared from the from the picture completely so I, I and I think a lot of it has happened by accident that's why I use the word opportunism it's it's like a sort of aligning of the planets in the worst imaginable ways with with Trump and Fox News in America and with Farage and Euroscepticism or Farage and the Brexit referendum here it just it just opened a new space that didn't exist before for media that would once at least have had one foot in the truth being so committed to a cause like Brexit that it that it 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 it, it took up people like Farage and turned them into sort of almost like weird folk heroes Aren't we all guilty of this to some extent, though? No matter what our political views, like LBC, which you're, I can see you're speaking me from to me from the studio there. Yeah, I mean, people are. I'm not, not sure if it's the law or if it's the way in which customs and culture have changed, but people are allowed or are encouraged to bring their opinions to the table in jobs like presenting that perhaps they weren't permitted to or encouraged to 20 years ago or more. There is something in that, but it depends what the opinion is, doesn't it? I mean, if your opinion is that Donald Trump won the election against Joe Biden and was and was somehow denied by uh, dodgy voting machines, then that obviously doesn't deserve to be treated with the same weight and respect as the opinion that Joe Biden won the election. It, it, it's, those two positions are night and day. So I think, and, and, and you're right, we are probably all a little bit guilty of sort of form of false equivalence, a form of false balance, whereby you have two people offering up two conflicting opinions and the broadcaster is compelled to, to treat them as, as equal and opposite forces. For the presenter who's expressing opinions, we've got a big problem developing in the United Kingdom now because we, we have new television stations that are riding roughshod over the kind of regulations and traditions that, that a station like LBC would follow. So on, on my radio station, my opinions, albeit that I'd argue they were all evidence-based and, and close to fact, they are balanced out by other presenters on the same station with whom I would agree about very, very little. But we've got uh, an outfit called GB News and another one, another Murdoch creation called Talk TV, which are not really attracting audiences, but they are attracting politicians and they're attracting, you know, right-wing politicians in particular on the first station. And they're pumping out an almost unleavened diet of bias or or, or opinion or, or whatever you prefer to call it with no leavening um, effect being provided by other presenters on the same station. So, so that 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 is where, where my current book ends. Actually, just as this new dawn was beginning to emerge, and since I finished it, I've realised something that's quite obvious. Once the penny drops, is the kind of people that are funding these organisations, these these broadcast outlets, are probably recognising the decline of newspapers and are preempting the decline in influence that the decline of newspapers will bring. So Fox News is the model in America. Murdoch, his empire, haven't managed to replicate that here with Talk TV, but they're not going to stop trying in, in, in some way, shape or form because getting that stranglehold upon public discourse cannot be achieved via newspapers anymore, so they're going to have to do it via 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 via, via broadcast media with with television stations and radio stations and that's fine as long as Ofcom does its job Ofcom as you know is our, our broadcast regulator and and they they have historically been quite strict but under Boris Johnson and this is a, an example in the book of the incestuous nature of 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 just how incestuous things have become uh, Boris Johnson wanted to put Paul Dacre in charge of Ofcom Paul Dacre is 
the notorious editor of the Daily Mail, now, now the editor-in-chief, the man who came up with those incredibly fascistic front pages about enemies of the people to describe high court judges and crush the saboteurs to describe democratically elected MPs and, and um, our Remainer universities to demonstrate complete contempt for the concept of academic freedom. So the idea that someone so completely uh, uh, boiled in bigotries and bile could be the head of Ofcom gives an indication perhaps of, of, I mean, thankfully the checks and balances were still in place to send him packing twice, but the, the, it gives an indication of the direction of traffic and, and these new outlets, I think, are, are, are they deserve a lot more attention than they currently receive viewers because of the, the direction in which they point. I mean, this has been coming for a long time and a lot of these battles have been fought and you write uh, quite a lot in the book about battles over the BBC or attempts to influence the BBC, or you could even argue attempts to cow the BBC. And you argued that a lot of cowing has been going on and the BBC is has, is in trouble as a result of that. Yeah, and, and I, I think some of it's conscious and some of it's subconscious. Probably most of it's subconscious. You know, the, the example I always use is when I was presenting Newsnight, the former Director General of the World Trade Organization was available and Pascal Lamy, to talk to us about what the World Trade Organization did. And this was during one of the peculiar Brexit fever dreams when all the usual suspects were claiming that leaving the European Union with no trade deal whatsoever and living by what they called WTO rules would be some sort of promised land. And and this was palpably absurd and a profoundly ignorant position. Um, and there would be no better person to explain what that would mean than a former director general of the World Trade Organization. But... But when we booked him, they, 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 I remember the producer saying to me, well, we'll need to get another guest. And I said, well, why? What are you going to do? He's the former director general of the World Trade Organization, and he's going to talk to us about the World Trade Organization. You can't book someone to tell him that he's wrong. But that's what they did. And and, and we ended up having Andrea Ledsom, of all people, sitting on the, the other side of the the studio table. And, and that was an indication of of being cowed into false equivalence. And then you have the weird stuff that the BBC does. Um like providing free advertising for, for newspapers that are dedicated to their destruction, inviting people on who are working now for these new broadcasters. The BBC is so, I think it's so terrified of getting ticked off by these increasingly less influential newspapers that it's forgotten what it's supposed to stand for. And while there are still some superb journalists there, some brilliant individual and independent journalists, it's not a coincidence that people like Emily Maitlis and... Uh, and John Sopel and Lewis Goodall have, have hit the road. And it is significant that the Twitter account of Gary Lineker draws more criticism and attention from, from the bulk of the UK media than the fact that the, there's a bloke on the board at the BBC now called Robbie Gibb, who was director of communications in Theresa May's government. So, you know, the, the, the notion of infiltration coupled with the notion of cowing and then added to the express and explicit desire to, to break up the BBC. We saw that when Nadine Dorries was Secretary of State for Culture. They, they sort of said the quiet bit out loud. means that the last bastion of, of, of truly independent journalism is under existential threat at the moment. And it's, it's not a coincidence or an accident. This is probably too broad a question, but what do all these people want? Say, for example, the 10 people you're talking about. They're a pretty diverse range of people. They range from the, you know, there are liars and there are madmen and there are various other kinds of people in there and there are probably crooks as well. But what what is their joint mission? 
That's a brilliant question. Um, and, and you're right, I can't answer it for all 10 of the, of the characters in the book, but the abiding theme, and, it, and, and I'm afraid I, I, I can't really call it an ideology, but they are dedicated to the interests of the very wealthy. So whether or not it is trying to distract people who are concerned about inequality or concerned about their own economic, socioeconomic situation to distract them from the real causes for it by serving up uh, a, a diet of small boats and refugees, or whether it is trying to bring in what they like to call small state or classical liberal economic models where less and less money is spent on what we would call social capital. So, you know, anything from from libraries right through to the NHS, uh, making sure that people who are out of work can live with relative dignity, having taxes on things like uh, very sugary drinks or banning cigarettes or having minimum pricing for alcohol, all of the stuff that gets filed pejoratively under nanny state. They're all, when you think about it, um, they're all obstacles to profiteering. If, if I have to have health and safety legislation in my factory, I will make less money. If I'm going to get taxed on pouring sugary poisons down children's throats, I will make less money. If I am going to be uh, uh, you know, forced to abide by minimum wage legislation, I will make less money. So what, what, what they all have in common is, is a dedication to the idea that government should not try to make the lives of citizens better. Business should be left to do whatever it wants to do. And that will, by a sort of process I've never really understood, and it's a philosopher called Hayek who is credited with starting this school of thought as a kind of reaction to John Maynard Keynes, by letting business do whatever it wants to do, stability will follow. And if you think about the absurdity of something like trickle-down economics, the idea of um, making sure that tons and tons and tons and tons of money accrues at the very top of society and that will somehow make us all better off, then then you get an idea of, about what nine of the characters in the book have got in common, although obviously this wouldn't be a fair analysis of Jeremy Corbyn. No, you have your own criticisms of Jeremy Corbyn. We might come to those in a minute. We're just going to take a very quick break. We'll be back after this. And welcome back. James O'Brien is still here. James, I was asking you what what these people were after the um, in in your book. I suppose the follow up question is, and you gave a very articulate critique of what you might call, you know, small government neoliberalism or however you want to characterize it as. How has it been so successful? If it is not because I would I would guess that from from your perspective, the kind of political position which you hold um, is for, that to, use, to use a phrase beloved of Jeremy Corbyn, the many, not the few. So how come so many people are voting or have voted for uh, the Tories over the last decade and a half? Well, I, I mean, in 2019, it was it was a Hobson's choice between the unelectable and the unconscionable with, 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 with Johnson and Corbyn. But but more broadly, going back going back to 2010, um, I, I mean, I, the, 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 there's no definitive answer to this question. But a lot of the themes that we've touched on already will will play into it. So, a demonisation of immigration, um, an, an othering of immigrants, and a promise from right wing parties to to address it. Although, of course, that promise has come to naught. You can't underestimate the role that Brexit has played. So, from about twenty, from about twenty. Well, from from Cameron's election in 2015, really, when it moved up a notch, the idea that the European Union was operating deliberately against UK interests, that it was actually an enemy 
uh, of which we were part of. That captured the imagination of huge swathes of the population. It's the best way. In fact, when you add that to the immigration, that's how Brexit happened. It had nothing to do with um, economics, really, or, or, or anything more, more nuanced or subtle. It was demonising foreigners and demonising Brussels. And that delivered the huge majority of the people that ended up to um, turn us into the first population in history to vote to impose economic sanctions on ourselves. And then, and this is where I do begin to sound a bit like a stuck record, it is an unleavened diet, Hugh. It, it is, you know, the, the, the Telegraph, the Mail, the Times, the Express, the Sun, every, uh, and, and even as they sell fewer and fewer copies every day, they still set the conversational agenda for broadcast media and even to an extent for social media. And so the, the, the people are just not getting any other perspective than the one that the owners and the editors of those newspapers and increasingly their sister stations, their sister broadcast operations want them to get. And so I've always been a great believer in, in contempt for the con men and compassion for the conned because I, I, I think that the, I think it's very, very difficult to, uh, to, to be informed in this country at the moment. I think that it's very, very difficult to uh, identify the accumulation of wealth among a, a, a tiny, tiny proportion of the population as a much, much bigger driver of inequality and unfairness than uh, unemployment or immigration. And so that's why people vote for it. If I tell you, look, there's two ways into it. And Donald Trump typifies this perhaps better than British politics does. If, if you are, if you feel that you're waiting in the queue and other people are pushing in front of you, then it's politically very effective to say, I'll get rid of the people who are pushing in front of you. And of course, the bit I didn't get at the time is if you've got a lot, so you're not voting from a position of resentment or, or a position of, of uh, uh, wanting more. You've got a lot. You're comfortable. And I come along and tell you that there's some people over there who are going to take what you've got. And again, I make you the promise that I'm the one who will who will deal with them. I'm the one who will ban them from coming into this country or I'm the one that will will, will will deal with them, whether it's, you know, Polish lorry drivers, Mexican migrants, the woke mob, the tofu-eating woke karate, whatever it is, I'm going to sell you an enemy that is dedicated to uh, demeaning your interests and then I'm going to sell you the idea that I'm the solution. And you can't really blame people who've been persuaded that the enemy exists to vote for the self-styled solutions. Brexit being a great case in and yet point. I w- well, indeed, and, but, but, but yet I wonder, and in, rela- in relation to Brexit, I, I still do wonder, I, I take your point on that, but, you know, the kind of trends which you're describing in your book and in, 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 the, other, in the other books you've written as well, they're not peculiar to the United Kingdom. They manifest in a, in a very particular way in the United Kingdom because of the way its politics work and something like Brexit hasn't happened elsewhere. But your Georgia Maloney's and your Marine Le Pen's and your AFD's in Germany, and as you mentioned, your Trump's in the United States, they are in a sense, they are all opportunists or entrepreneurs who have fixed on to something. I was, I was interested, particularly interested in your depiction of Dominic Cummings, who you were slightly more sympathetic to, I think because at least you felt he wasn't a crook. Yeah. Um, and he he honestly believed the the slightly mad things that, that you know that he believed, which may put him elevated him above the level of a couple of the other people. <laughs> but he was in in his own weird, you know, I'm an outsider, even though I'm a part of the establishment way. He was sort of tapping into a thing which was something's gone wrong with our country. And in a way, that's what's being preyed on here. That notion, isn't it? I know it manifests itself in, in in things like nativism and racism and stuff, but it it runs a bit deeper as well. 
Does well, it not? It's sort of post-industrial age, really, isn't it? And and um, or at least it is mm. for the UK. And and this uh, social contract being broken, and the idea that you play by the rules and you don't get the reward that you would have got back in the day. It's certainly not confined to the United Kingdom, not not by any stretch of the imagination. But I think that the the combination of the forces I write about is is peculiar. The scale of it here is is peculiar. But you're right. I mean, what what is Keir Starmer's challenge going to be if he becomes prime minister in this country? Because you you look at what is broken. You look at whether it's you know the shocking amounts of sewage that we have in our waterways, or the length of the NHS waiting lists, or the or the logjam in our criminal justice system, or the uh, or the poverty. You know, the proliferation of food banks and and warm banks, and even the people who aren't affected by that feel that they've been increasingly dealt uh, a duff hand. So I think that one of the roads leads back to that question of um, state intervention. The gov- government, the state, people actually want it to do more for them, e- even though the, the 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 dominant theme of political discourse in this country for, for 30 years has been that we want less, we want a smaller state, we want less regulation, we want to burn red tape. I think if you actually gave people the facts and removed the inflammatory language, they would want the state to do more. And I think the politicians you describe dishonestly either promise explicitly or implicitly give the impression that they are going to do more for people. They are going to make America great again. They they are going to take back control. They are going to um, improve the lot of, of voters, even as almost all of them are actually in private and sometimes in public dedicated to the to the opposite mode of government because that's the only way you can cut taxes you can't increase you can't cut taxes and increase public spending uh, i don't think even liz Truss, well actually liz Truss kind of did try to sell that idea to the country which possibly is might be pertinent because it's a sort of apotheosis of the madness that we're caught up in so you have to you have to tell people that you're going to improve their lives while either acknowledging that that is going to cost money or pretending that it isn't or to go back to trust and quoting ending up in this weird place where you honestly believed because you are a product of this think tank culture that i described you honestly believe that by letting businesses do more and more and more and more it will somehow be create money for everybody so i quite like that point i I think that's quite important that idea of populists promise improvement don't they and the best populists are the ones that always avoid and even never get asked the question of how they're going to provide it. So Truss is the one who ultimately really blew the whole thing up, wasn't it? And it's uh, it, it, before we before we came on air here today, I was talking to our producer, I said to you as well before, we, um, in a weird kind of a way, we miss the Monty Python-esque <laughs> weirdness of what happened in the United Kingdom over the course of that, you know, year or two. And the, the aftermath of COVID, COVID itself was obviously was obviously appalling. But this cast of 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 rogues and and, and something else from Nadine Doris to Pretty Patel to Quasi Kartang and, and and Liz Truss. And something about the, you know, the the death of the Queen, the the, the explosion of the government. It was like some kind of a fever fever breaking, it seemed to me. What do you think? So much news. And and I'm not sure things have got much better. They've probably just got a little less surreal or or, or insane. But, uh, you know, um, yesterday in Parliament, the Tories were arguing with each other 
about the Rwanda bill that, that is a, a piece of madness. Everybody forgets, and I'm an anorak, so I remember, that the Rwanda bill, which for, for people lucky enough not to know, essentially involves the promise to deport genuine asylum seekers, I, you know, so genuinely potential refugees to Africa, to, to Rwanda, um, despite the fact that since the deal was signed, six people from Rwanda have had asylum applications accepted here. It was reported this week. So it's a country so safe, we're currently accepting asylum applications from there. But this appeared the day after the Sue Gray report into Boris Johnson's malfeasance at Downing Street. And so I don't think it was ever designed to be a policy cue. I think it was just designed to give the Daily Mail a reason not to put Partygate on the front page of the next day's newspaper. Johnson and his cronies rushed it out as a, as a sort of ill-thought-out, quick look over there, the dead cat type of scenario. But, but now, you know, 18 months, two years later, here we are watching Tories tear each other to shreds in the House of Commons because some of them don't think it's nasty enough, some of them think it's too nasty, and, and some of them think it's just right. It's like the sort of Goldilocks of politics, <laughs> and 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 so it is still it's still just as mad and just as surreal. All that's changed, I think, is that the leading characters, the protagonists, are not as ridiculous. Um, I think the politics is as ridiculous, but the protagonists are not as ridiculous as a Boris Johnson or as ridiculous as a Nadine Dorries or as ridiculous as a Jacob Rees-Mogg or, or or a Liz Truss. Or actually, I'll qualify that they're not as obviously ridiculous. So you don't have that sense of watching a pantomime that you had for the period of time that you described. But I think when you actually look at what's happening, I mean, we've got a bunch of... We've got five different factions now in the Parliamentary Conservative Party, all keen to tack to the right, but all sufficiently distinct to have their own names and their own leaders. And they've started calling themselves the Five Families in a sort of allusion to the godfather to Mario Puzo and these are some these are some of the most absurd people ever to occupy the parliamentary benches but in their own minds they're Michael Corleone you know so i think i think that the 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 characters may not be as 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 explicitly absurd but the landscape of british politics is still absolutely bonkers there's only one left winger on your list, and as you mentioned earlier, that's uh, that's Jeremy Corbyn. And your uh, critical is too mild a word, really, for what you say about the role that he played both in the Brexit referendum and then leading as well his contribution to Boris Johnson's big victory in 2019. Yeah, I, I mean, I, at its simplest, you, you can't analyse a 10-0 a, a, a defeat without looking at the goalkeeper, can you? And And he was the leader of the opposition. And particularly during Brexit, he was absent. He, he was not present. I, I think it's impossible. I think, actually, as I say in the book, Diane Abbott has subsequently said on the record that he was a lever all along. He, he, he was never a Remainer. So even if he had campaigned for Remain, he would have been doing so insincerely and half-heartedly, and you'd struggle, really, to persuade me that he that he campaigned at all. And then the the, the result in uh, in 2017, the unexpected good performance against Theresa May, I think, was the worst imaginable outcome for the country because it created in the mind of Jeremy Corbyn and his he has a very curious phalanx of quite unpleasant supporters who who trumpet their commitment to a, a kind of gentler politics but then dedicate their lives, particularly online, to being hideous, hideously vile to anybody who isn't fully signed up to, to, to the Jeremy Corbyn cult of personality. And it persuaded them 
that he was an electorally uh, popular figure, whereas the 2017 election result was all about the last chance of stopping Brexit. So people who had never voted Labour in their life before, people who were fairly unhappy with what Jeremy Corbyn represented but knew what the alternative would be, they would hold their nose and vote Labour, and then you have people, myself included, who, who would struggle to vote for any other party ever, really. Whatever the circumstances were, they voted for him. Theresa May was in disarray. Tories were biting chunks out of each other. And so he did a lot better in that election than anybody expected, and and they carried that for two years, uh, this belief that, that he could win a general election, whereas I think everybody paying attention knew that he couldn't. And I hold him personally responsible for that, but much more so it was the people around him who would work tirelessly to keep him out of studios. They kind of knew that the more the public saw of him, the less popular he'd become. And, and that, you know, that's just absurd. I think it's a measure of how volatile, not just British politics, all politics, I think, are becoming more volatile at the moment for a range of reasons. But back in 2019, Boris Johnson got his big victory. The general received wisdom everywhere I read in the British media was Labour weren't coming back. It would be a two-election return for them to have any chance of getting near near government again. And yet here we are this week and we see opinion polls that say Labour are likely to win the biggest landslide since, since 1906 or something like that. Do you think that's likely to happen? Uh, I, yeah, I do think it's possible. I, 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 I wouldn't go as far as likely or probable, but it's certainly in the realms of the possible. And, and it's a testament to the job that Starmer has done in uh, detaching the, the, the Labour Party from its previous incarnation, which he has done determinedly and, and, um, and, and, and vigorously. Uh, and, and, you know, I wasn't one of the people that thought that Johnson was going to be in for, for two or three terms. The Tories might have hung on. Because it's all built on nonsense. I've written about this previously. I talk about it almost every day. But but at some point, reality has to kick in. You know, at some point, the idea that Brexit was going to improve people's lives has to be universally refuted. Uh, you, the, the, the madness of it has to be acknowledged. And Johnson's triumph was built upon a doubling down on the promise in 2016. So I was very worried about what was going to happen when Johnson and Cummings got their hands on the levers of power because Johnson was going to completely ignore them and Cummings is a megalomaniac. God only knew what he was going to do with it. And then along came COVID, which blew up all of their plans. But I, I was never persuaded that that administration would survive for very long because it was built on sand. It was built on sand and bullshit. And, and the only question for me was, how long will it take for, for, for reality to be recognised? The bit I didn't see coming was the Tory party staying committed to the madness even after they'd got rid of Boris Johnson. I thought particularly, trust I think is an aberration that almost defies analysis. But when Sunak talked about professional, uh, integrity, professionalism and accountability in his first speech from the podium outside Downing Street... I thought he was tacitly acknowledging the awfulness of what had gone before. I thought he was, because when you say I'm going to bring integrity, professionalism and accountability, it seems to me fairly clear you're saying that it hasn't been here previously, even in the administration I was Chancellor of the Exchequer in. But then three hours later, he put Suella Braverman back in the Home Office. So the idea that he was a new brush disappeared immediately. So, so the bit I didn't see coming was the Tory party edging ever further away from reality. And, and in, the, in the London Times yesterday, Daniel Finkelstein, a former speechwriter for David Cameron, actually put, put in a headline something I've been saying for years. 
And I would never have expected a, a Tory peer to say the same thing about the Tory party, which is that they're in the realms of fantasy. They are now utterly, utterly removed from reality, um, up to and including the point where the poll you refer to paid for anonymously, £70,000 worth of opinion polling, trumpeted on the front page of the Daily Telegraph, just to pull together all of the themes I explore in the book in, in, in a, an event that happened long after I published it. It, it designed to push the Tory party further to the right on the immigration question, um, uh, championed in the pages of the Telegraph by David Frost, the ludicrous figure who negotiated the withdrawal agreement and then tried to disown it before the ink was dry, but nevertheless got a peerage for his troubles anyway. All of the forces that I talk about are still there and still pushing and still exerting immense pressure on the, on the body politic to, to the point where I think the Conservative Party is probably still probably two more leaders away from 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 sanity um and i didn't see that coming i thought that the epic failure of boris johnson compounded by the astonishing disaster of liz truss would see them rushing back to the middle ground but they're not they're they're, they're rushing further to the right so it'll be a bit like the years after 1997, if and when they, they lose the election. But I do wonder about that because they obviously, when I say they, I say some of the five families to whom you refer there, <laughs> uh, hope that, you know, a reinvigorated, swung to the right Conservative Party will be will be back in business within a couple of years. And I suppose that really begs the question, this is my last question to you, because I know, and thanks very much for the, for the time you've given us, but is... How well equipped is Keir Starmer to deal with that? I, I I was thinking about him as I was reading your book, and I was thinking, in a in a weird kind of way, your book sort of explains Keir Starmer because Keir Starmer has sort of created himself as a sort of a vacuum at the centre of British politics in order to avoid a lot of the stuff which you're talking about there. He's like a man tiptoeing very gingerly through a minefield uh, and doing it quite effectively, you'd have to say. Yeah, doing it very effectively and and beginning perhaps to. To, to, to stride a little more uh, strongly. I, I, he, he Something last week about the nanny state, actually. It was not a phrase he used himself, but it was a phrase someone interviewing him used, our political editor, actually, at, at LBC, Natasha Clark, and he didn't disagree, try, trying to, I think, revivify the idea that the role of government and the only point in having power is to improve the lives of the public, not to compete on who can promise to make other people's lives worse. If you, if you, and again, I'm an optimist by nature and I am a liberal by nature and I lean to the left by uh, both nature, by, 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 by intellect, I suppose. And, and, and so I mentioned that because I, I'm sort of acknowledging biases, but it seems to me that the modern Tory party is going to be a, 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 a circular firing squad of promises on who's going to make other people's life worse. Vote for me, I will make their lives worse. Vote for me, I will make the lives of people coming over in small boats worse. Vote for me, I'll make the lives of unemployed people worse. Vote for me, I'll make the lives of, of poorly people or disabled people worse. And Starmer has a big space there to promise to make people's lives better. And if he does, if he does, and if he measurably does start improving things, then I think that the Tory party's next incarnation as a, as a sort of almost Trumpist, populist, anti-immigration and not known for much else movement, I think it'll be a godsend to him. I, 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 I don't think anyone 
who isn't currently drawn to that kind of bilious politics is suddenly going to wake up one morning and think, do you know what? That's the answer to my problems. So I should take it that you're optimistic. I am optimistic. And I've probably for the first time, I wasn't when I wrote the book, you could probably tell I wasn't optimistic when I finished it. But I think subconsciously, you're right. I think subconsciously there is a a, a kind of description almost of, of what the antidote to the poison I described would be. And it does look at the moment a lot like... Keir Starmer, who is incredibly careful not to fall into the bear traps uh, that, that, that the right-wing media here would set for him. He's not pandering to um, uh, factions within his own party. He's absolutely determined to, to win the next general election. And everything he does, every single thing he does, is dedicated to, to that end. And I like that as the opposite of what his predecessor was was all about. You cannot, it doesn't matter what your principles are, what your policies are, or, or what your ideas, your ideals, your ideologies are. If you're never in power, you're never going to be able to do anything. And goodness me, there's an awful lot of broken stuff that needs fixing. So I think it would be profoundly unpatriotic at the moment, Hugh, not to, not to want um, Keir Starmer to be the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. On that patriotic note, we, we will leave it there. James Bryan's book, just to remind you, is called How They Broke Britain. It's available in all good bookshops. James, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Hugh. Always a pleasure. That's it for today's podcast. Thanks very much to our producer, Declan Conlon. We are going to be back with you very soon later in the week with our Friday wrap. Until then, thank you very much for listening.